You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play by Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it, just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all that on camera, right, John? Sure, I did. All right, because the red light was not on. The podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Oh, you can stick me in some kind of Italian boat because that one is Gondola. Now, from New York. Really? All the big ones are from New York. Your host, Joe Godet. It's still Joel. Yeah, he will not be able to see very well, Cotton. All right, we're back at it with another episode of Play by Playcast. Thanks, as always, for the subscribe, the stream, the download. This is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. It's a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play by play announcers in the business. You can find it on social media at PXPCast. I'm on Twitter at Joel Godet. Shoot me an email as well, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U for Ball State University, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U to get in touch. Uh, My name is Joel Gannett, by the way. I'm the host of this year podcast, and our guest today is Steve Rabel, who just retired one of his jobs recently, the news anchor, Evening News on Cairo 7 in Seattle. Not the sports guy. The news guy that you would turn on every night in the Pacific Northwest. That is one segment of Steve Rabel's life. The other segment is as the former NFL wide receiver, an original member of the Seattle Seahawks, turned broadcaster, color analyst for the Seattle Seahawks, and then in 2004, the play-by-play voice of the Seattle Seahawks. Steve is a guy who was incredible to talk to Because of the melding of those two professions, well, really one profession, but two prongs of that role, here's a guy that played in the NFL, but had a fascination prior to that with the news business and and the great newsmen um, of his childhood, for lack of a better way of putting that, and was infatuated with what they did and intrigued by what they did and that carried over into his playing career in terms of the way that he interacted with the media and then at one point in his career the offer came down to host a magazine show to be a at that point sports reporter and to be a color analyst for the team that at that point he was still playing for and uh, as you'll hear on the podcast Uh, Steve's wife took the job for him, and uh, the rest, shall we say, is history. He's interesting because he's such a well-rounded broadcaster. If you could do it in broadcasting, in terms of radio, or television, or news, or sports, live late-breaking coverage, feature reporting, uh, on-site hosting, anything you can think of, Steve has done it in various different mediums, in various different genres. Um, If you are a media consumer in Seattle, you know who Steve Rabel is. And that is a large part of what made this conversation really interesting because of the amount of things he's done and how those all play off of and with each other throughout the course of his career. Steve is retired now from the television business, but assuming we have an NFL season here in 2020, he will be back behind the mic as the play-by-play voice of the Seattle Seahawks. A phenomenal conversation with Steve Rabel this week on PXPCast. I was in the fourth or fifth grade when uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and I remember sitting in our basement where we had uh, a television and just watching uh, for hours through the entire weekend this this live continuing coverage. And the, obviously the, the, the uh, moment, uh, I understood how big that was, even as a young kid, but I was also interested in how it was being talked about and how it was covered. And, you know, in those days, TV ended at midnight. And they went to uh, the national anthem and then test pattern. And it started up again at like six in the morning or seven in the morning. So to watch coverage that was pretty much wall to wall continuous uh, on this event was something that none of us had seen. So that probably was one of the first things that just got me thinking about this, this, this business of 
relaying information uh, in the form of television uh, or radio news to uh, viewers and listeners. And when I got to Georgia Tech, uh, I was obviously I was playing football and and uh, I heard that David Brinkley was coming to Tech uh, to speak at the student union uh, at the activity center and. Uh, so I went, and it was free if you were a, a student, and there were only like maybe a hundred of us there. And I thought, wow, this is you know David Brinkley is a big <laughs> name in this in this industry. And so I listened to him for an hour talk about the stories that he covered and everything from from uh, the civil rights marches to the Vietnam War and everything you can imagine in between. And it was I just found it fascinating. And so when I got out here to Seattle in 1976 and, and started playing with the Seahawks, um, I, I made friends easily and quickly with a number of the writers and broadcasters. I became a kind of a go-to guy who uh, was, you know, I, you stick a microphone in front of me and I'll answer the question. Uh, and we had some pretty rough days in those early years. We won two games in <laughs> 1976. And uh, let's see, I think we won four or five in 1977. So it wasn't exactly a huge jump. But um, I, I appreciated the work they did, and and for me, more importantly, I was interested in how they did their jobs. So jump ahead, I had a chance to do, while I was playing, a lot of television commercials and appear on shows locally and, and uh, do a lot of speaking engagements and, and overnight telethons here to raise money at charities. And so in 1982, right before the start of the season, um, I was getting ready for the 82 season. I was in great shape and ready to go. And the play-by-play man, then play-by-play guy for the Seahawks, a guy named Pete Gross, who was the first um, uh, voice of the Seahawks and is now in the ring of honor, in fact, uh, here, in, uh, here in Seattle at uh, CenturyLink Field, he called my wife, Sharon, and said uh, – I was, I was away on a charity event somewhere – and said, uh, hey, Sharon, we have several – uh, jobs here at Cairo Television and KIRO Television and Radio in Seattle. And we think Steve could do those things. One would be the color analyst for Seahawks on radio because they were losing their color analyst. One would be a backup sports guy on TV. Uh, and one would be hosting a nightly um, magazine show uh, on TV with a co-host. And we think he could do all three of those. And so she said, when do you need to know? And he said, next week. And she said, I'll have him there Monday. And that was that. <laughs> and then part of it was in, in 81, I had suffered a collapsed lung in preseason. So the only three games I've missed in the history of the franchise, actually, whether as a player or a broadcaster, was when I was in the hospital with a collapsed lung and um, and then couldn't make the opening game of the season uh, that year. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I was – it hadn't been a great year for me my last year. And so anyway, that's a long way of saying that we we kind of worked our way through it while we were playing and 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 got some experience and talked to a lot of people. And I'm a sponge. I try to listen and learn from people. And so I knew that that interested me a lot. And when I was given the opportunity, although it was one of those opportunities, and as you know, you know, they just don't grow on trees. And yeah. so you have to prove yourself. You, you know, you just can't walk in there and think you know it all. And uh, you have to be willing to work hard at it, do it the right way. And so I had a lot of good examples uh, that way that I could follow. And uh, and that's what happened. And so here we are today. I just retired from the television side after 38 years. And uh, I'm still broadcasting Seahawks if we, if we in fact, play. <laughs> which I think we will in some way, shape, or form. But it's it's been great. It's been a great ride, and and um, I'm sitting here looking right – I'm in my den where I was watching uh, President Obama just now, and there's a picture uh, of me with him. I interviewed him in 2018, 2017, I think, at the White House. Uh, and so uh, that's sitting there. So I've had an opportunity to do a lot of really interesting things aside from call a Super Bowl game or uh, or a sporting event. I think I think you're the first guest on this podcast who's interviewed a sitting president. Um, so <laughs> how, how surreal is that? Uh, it was really interesting. In fact, I, I, I've interviewed three of them: President uh, Clinton, um, President George H. W. 
And uh, I, I, in fact, interviewed uh, Jimmy Carter after he was out of office when he had written the book and he was coming through Seattle. So, uh, yeah, to be given those opportunities, which is one of the reasons I think that I decided to jump from sports. Uh, in 1986, I started uh, anchoring, uh, co-anchoring our noon newscast here at the station. And then by 92, I moved into the role as main news anchor. And I think that's one of the things that I really, really appreciated is, you know, as much as I love sports and love football, I just couldn't see myself for 35 or 40 years, um, you know, saying, you know, there's a home run and there's a there's a three pointer and there had to be more to it than that. And so to be able to cover the big stories of our generation and uh, um, elections, consequential elections like the, the election of Barack Obama uh, in 2008, things like that really, to me, uh, became very, very important. And so I, 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 I jumped on it, jumped on that opportunity. And, and so to get to, yes, interview a, a sitting president uh, on a myriad of subjects was something that I just, I couldn't pass up. I, between you and me, I might pass it up today, <laughs> but I couldn't pass it up then. Is he the, is he the first one that asked you how the Seahawks were looking? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, he was. <laughs> because, you know, he was a big fan of the Seahawks. Uh, he, he got to know some of those guys. And remember, we went back there after the Super Bowl yeah. in 2014. And I went, I covered that with the team as well. <clears throat> and um, and then I remember I remember explicitly the president in, in one of the uh, uh, correspondence dinners uh, and, and going on a bit of a rant. And you could tell he was kind of joking about it. But then he turned and there was Richard Sherman sitting in the audience. Say, Richard, how'd I do? <laughs> and, and so he really... He really liked the Seahawks. I, I think, you know, he liked everything that they stood for, and, and Russell and Richard and, and of course, Pete. Um, and, and, you know, he, he for those young black men to see a, a man of his stature yeah. uh, there in the, uh, in the Oval Office and then, of course, uh, in the East Room where we had the, the, the celebration for the team, uh, that's that's big stuff for those guys it's 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 important to an old guy like me but it was really big for those young men and so uh i i think that uh you know he he enjoyed the team he liked it and so when i walked into the interview he kind of was prepped and knew that i was the had heard that i was the voice of the seahawks and so you know he wanted to talk about cam chancellor was holding out a camp or something and he wanted to talk about cam i said mr president i i, I only only have a few minutes so i i'd love to chat with you about this but uh, so we moved on. But uh, yeah, he's he's quite the sports fan. I say, Mr. President, if you want to, we can make a coffee date sometime. But uh, <laughs> that's that's right. Yeah, he hadn't called back. <laughs> um, I got this question. Um, I spoke to a class back in uh, in the spring, and and the professor of it asked, "Are play-by-play broadcasters, in my opinion, uh, journalists?" So, uh, as someone who is both a play-by-play broadcaster and a journalist. Um, in the purest sense of the word, I, I was curious what your take on that question might be. I, knowing what I know as a journalist, um, I would say in in many ways, yes. Um, and I can look at it from two different standpoints. From the strictly play-by-play side, you're bringing, well, to some, very, very important <laughs> information uh, in a truthful, honest manner to those who are listening or watching. You are adding to that with stories that, uh, that can help um, uh, describe the event and, and, and sort of color the scene as you see it. And it's, I think, for those who, who are big into sports, and, and many, many, maybe not most, but many, many are, uh, it, I think it's important, and and the way we the way we do that, the way we broadcast that, uh, I think there's a there is a great deal of journalism involved in that. On the other side of the coin, the skills of being a play-by-play broadcaster are invaluable to the journalist, and that you don't have to look any further than breaking news. I can't tell you how many times in my 38 years I have had breaking news situations where I, I have called upon skills of being a, a play-by-play man in describing the, the situation, in being able to carry on the conversation for literally hours, and in some cases with, with very little video to back it up. Yeah. 
so that that really has uh, worked, you know, worked to my benefit uh, in both uh, both those uh, parts of my job as as a news anchor and as a play by play guy. So yeah, I would say that there there is a great deal of journalism in that. You know, you're searching you're searching for the truth, even if the truth is who's going to win this event, who's going to win this game, how are they going to do it. Uh, that, there's a truth in that. So, uh, yeah, I, I'd say so. And there was an interesting quote that I, I saw you had, too, that was, uh, your ultimate job is to be honest to the viewer, which in any role, yes. that's ultimately what you're looking for. Right, right. Uh, you know, there, there's there's way too much of of uh, not being honest with viewers or today, especially in social media. I mean, nobody, nobody, most, many people don't know. And a lot of people don't check. They just see it written down in a, in a tweet and they take it as the truth. And uh, in many, many cases, it couldn't be any further from the truth. Truth doesn't come easily. Truth you have to look for, you have to dig for, you have to, you have to find it. You have to go looking for it, and it doesn't just happen. It doesn't just fall into your lap in many cases. So uh, I think it's the most important thing we do is to be honest with our viewers and with our listeners. Uh, if it's bad, you know, hey, you tell them it's bad. Um, and, and if there is, if there is uh, something to be learned from it, then help them discover what that is. Uh, but... Uh, you know, there, there's there's just there's so much more to it than just um, yelling and screaming and carrying on. There's there's yes, there's a there's a lot of truth and honesty that, that again is is not always easy to find. This is probably multifaceted because of the way that you got into broadcasting and the the amount of different things you did right off the bat. Um, but you talked about the the fact that you still it wasn't just you know, you had the job, but it wasn't just a given, like you had to go prove yourself. Um, how did you learn how to do it and, and learn how to be good in all of the different areas that you were attacking? Well, um, and I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. I've, I've always consider it a work in progress, uh, and, and try to learn uh, along the way and try to get better along the way, whether it's, anchoring news or broadcasting a game. Um, I, you know, I, I, I took, when kids ask me, what do you study uh, to become a broadcaster or a play-by-play guy? I said, um, I say, well, you know, are, are you in a journalism class? Is that what you're majoring in? Yes. Okay. Well then take every other, uh, class that you can take outside of that. Yeah. Take every Shakespeare class, every writing, creative writing course, uh, everything you can take, history class, that gets you away from the nuts and bolts of journalism, but broadens your perspective on the rest of the world. And that will start to give you a sense for uh, adding perspective, adding depth to whatever it is you're talking about, whether it's uh, a news story, uh, here, whether it was uh, the, the election of, of Barack Obama or the earthquake that shook our city in 2001 and rattled it to its core, uh, be be educated, understand those kinds of things, um, and then you know the, the the idea that if you work hard enough at it, you have an opportunity to get better and to you know get the job. Uh, I did the color job. I was the analyst for my first, oh gosh, 22, 20 years, 20 something years with the broadcast for the Seahawks. It's hard for me to, um, to believe that <laughs> truly I'm, I'm telling you this in all honesty, <laughs> that, I'm, that, that this is now going on 45 years with this organization. And uh, I've been doing play by play since 2000, <clears throat> since 2003, 2004. But before that I was the analyst. So I listened, I watched, I learned, I understood how to pick up after the play-by-play guy finished, um, and I, I knew that job inside and out. The most difficult thing for me to learn about doing the play-by-play job was how not to do the color guy's <laughs> job, how not to do the analyst job. And because Warren Moon was my first analyst, and he knew more about football, he'd forgotten more than I ever knew, uh, I had to get in and out. Uh, and he understood that, you know, obviously play-by-play on radio is different. You have to set the scene. You have to have time to do all the things that you the, that you have to do. 
but again, to learn and listen to people who are good. Vern Lundquist, I loved to listen to. Um, I got to know uh, Merlin Olson a little bit uh, when I was still playing and then just after I retired. Charlie Jones, his broadcast partner with NBC. Really wonderful people who were more than willing to take the time uh, to uh, to talk to you. Al Michaels, um, I, you know, I, I, I had run across, Al and I had crossed paths for years, but only in the last few years had we really kind of gotten to know each other and chat. And, and uh, even today at 66, I, I can listen to Al and learn some things and talking to him before the game and some of the things that he's thinking about and looking at and looking for. Uh, in that game, uh, th- those are to me that's invaluable, and so I, I try to I try to glom onto every one of those opportunities. Having the background of having been a player and having played in the NFL, um, what do you wish that? I, what What is most helpful to you now, and what do you wish that people like myself who never were players at that level um, knew? Like what What would it be? What, how would it help me as a broadcaster? Um, to know some things that you know as a player now being in this role, if that makes sense? It does make sense, and it's a great question. Um, and, and when you really hear it, it's not so much out of you know, play-by-play guys like yourself um, and others, but where you really hear it is in just the kind of the general uh, cacophony of talk radio and, and the blogosphere and podcasts. And, and and that's not the mean podcast, <laughs> but it's to say people who have uh, an avenue to speak, but really don't know whereof they're speaking. All they have is an opinion. Well, you know what they say about opinions. Everybody's got one. <laughs> and uh, But have they been there? Have they been in the battle? Do they understand what it takes? It is not an easy thing to run a six-yard out route. There is so much that goes into that on the football field, the timing, the steps, the dropping of your hips, the turning of your head, the throw has to be right on the money, the sense of where the defenders, all those things go into just a little six-yard out route. And and I've, I've never been one to say, well, you know, you don't know what you're talking about because you never played. But I will say that those who have never done it don't understand how difficult something that looks so easy can be. And if you did, you might be less willing uh, to jump all over that player or suddenly come up with the, the answer to whatever, Ill, uh, whatever is, is, uh, is affecting the team or, or, the, or, hey, this coach needs to be fired because something happened during the game. I mean, you know, some of that stuff is just ludicrous, but I understand many of these guys and gals uh, have to generate ratings and they have to stay on the air. And so oftentimes the more, uh, the, the more outspoken you are, uh, the, the more people that listen. Doesn't mean you're right. Doesn't mean you know what you're talking about. Mm. But it means you have uh, ears and eyeballs. But that's one of the things that, to me, was most important. I, I understood. I still prepare for broadcast the way I prepared for games. And I, that carried over for me, and I think it's helped me a great deal. Uh, and and how to ask players questions about what it is that they're doing and what they're hoping to accomplish. So all those things have I, I think have have helped me uh, do my job. How do you prepare? Well, uh, it's it's a week long process. Um, you know, for thirty five, thirty eight years, I I did two jobs basically. My <laughs> five-day-a-week job, and for 27 of those years, I was the main anchor doing four newscasts a day, five days a week. From I'd get to the station about 2 o'clock in the afternoon and leave the station at midnight. <clears throat> and then during the week in football season, you have another job. Yeah. And so you're preparing every night of the week, uh, and that includes uh, you know going to the, the weekly press gaggle at uh, the VMAC, listening to Pete, talking to players, it was difficult for me when I had the other job to be able to spend too much time out at practice <laughs> as the guys who cover the the team are able to do because I, I you know I was always getting ready for a newscast 
Um, now I can do that. And of course, now we have to stay at home. So it's, it's kind of been a, a mixed blessing here, I guess, but, but that will change. Uh, but it's, it's a nightly, it's a nightly, uh, uh, job of preparing, uh, getting all the game notes together, listening to every, every interview that you can, um, reading and there are a lot of really great reporters and that's one good one of the good things about obviously the the web the, that there's lots of information on there and you can pull from all of those uh i try to look at some i don't know we i still call it game film but <laughs> i try to look at replays i don't get the cut-ups although now i might uh, be able to get that the cut-ups that the coaches use in in practice um, uh, and I try to look at both teams. I, I constantly try to look at the Seahawks, remind myself of the last game. What did they do? How did they do it? And then to prepare for the next game, look at the look at the breakdowns of of the opposing team, uh, read as much information on them. And then for me, what has always worked, and I've done it since day one, I have a spotting board. I'm sure you have one too. Yep. Um, and for me, it's uh, I've, I've kind of developed a process, and many guys have their own. But for me, it's the you know I have the boxes on there, and a buddy of mine who is a former teammate uh, and is good with a computer has developed a little computer program where he can take card stock, large card stock, and print out on it a grid with the and it spits out the names, uh, height, weight, school. Um, years in the league, and it puts them in the positions uh, that they're supposed to be in. So then inside that box, I can make my notes. And for me, uh, writing things down helps me remember them. So I'll take all week long and add notes to each little box. Now, I know our team pretty well, especially by the end of preseason. Now there's no preseason, so I'm going to have to you know hit the ground running. But the other teams, uh, to, to, you know, you don't have to put five or six notes for the third string left tackle, but I want to know as much as I can know about the quarterback, his receivers, the depth chart uh, two to three deep in the running back position, uh, the nickel back, you know, to, so, so there's where a lot of homework comes in and writing it down helps me remember it. Uh, I know I'll never use all the information during the course of the game, but it's there for me. Uh, and, and to me, that's, that's one of the big ways to prepare. And, and I'm going to now have more time, so I'll probably find more and better and more efficient ways to prepare. You had mentioned uh, learning to ask the right questions of the players as well. Uh, <laughs> what are the things that you need to know from players to feel most comfortable um, going into a game week? You know, it's interesting, Joe. I, I have had opportunities to do, you know, ask uh, just the straight football questions about, you know, what do you see in their defense? And I know if I ask a question like, how do you hope to take advantage of the fact that they keep four defensive backs on the field the majority of the time, they're not going to tell me because they're not going to give away the game, game secrets. Right. But uh, I can ask them about individuals. You know, how good is this guy? What do you, what do you look for in a, a defensive back uh, as the center? You know, what is your look up and down the line of scrimmage? You know, if there's a guy right over your head, what's the first thing that you have to do when there's a guy on your nose? Just kind of those basic sorts of questions, the things that, that, that a player is thinking when the game begins. The other thing that I've had a great opportunity in the last seven, eight years, we've had a show, maybe longer than that, uh, on Cairo TV and, and here and the station I worked for. And I think we're going to continue to do it. Uh, it was called the Steve Rabel Scouting Report. And it was just a way to do a weekly show on the Seahawks with, without being the Seahawks official station. Uh, and so uh, I, have, uh, I had an opportunity to go ask uh, a, a lot of questions of players in a sit-down atmosphere, in a long-form interview sort of, sort of situation. And I could talk to them about anything. And so I did. And I always found it way more interesting to talk to guys about, you know, their lives, uh, their backgrounds, uh, their parents, their mamas and daddies, and and if they were raised by their grandparents, or you know, they some of the young men that, that I've had a chance to talk to were born overseas to military parents. I mean, just as many different stories as you can imagine. What makes a guy tick? 
uh, how does he feel about something? That to me was always really important. And then that offers you a, an insight into that young man and, and who he is as a person, which then helps you into who he is and what he is on the football field. So I've always, uh, I've always enjoyed that kind of opportunity a lot. Um, how do you handle or how have you handled, you know, I work for Ball State University. I work for the school, so I'm not a media right. member. Um, but the, the running gag will always be like, I'll be standing around coaches and one of them will be like, oh, Joel's here. The media's around. Um, and uh, it's just, it is what it is. Um, right. Like in your case, literally the meet, like the evening news anchor uh, of Seattle is standing there. Um, how did you handle uh, creating the comfortability uh, with athletes, with coaches, with front office people um, of being the voice of the Seahawks while also being someone who is such a uh, respected, well-known member of the actual media in Seattle? Yeah, and that's that's it's a good question, and it's a it's a fine line. Um, you know, there have been stories, uh, and you know, let's face it, uh, players are players, and some of them are going to get into trouble sometimes, and so it's kind of a fine line in our newsroom when somebody does something or gets in some trouble and it becomes a news story as opposed to just a sports story. And sometimes they come to me and say, how do I get a hold of this guy? Mm. And the, the one good thing is I, I, I am always, uh, when I was a player, I appreciated our coach, Jack Patera, protecting our privacy as players. In those days we didn't have, uh, there was no media in the locker room. Now, I mean, I, if, if it had been mandated by the league, I'm sure we would have done it. But Jack wanted the players to have their space. So I, I want the players to have space. On the team plane, I don't walk back to the back and talk to them. If somebody comes up and wants to chat with me, as a number of them have done in the past and still do, that's great. But uh, So I don't ask for numbers. Uh, in rare, rare situations, when I ask for a player's number, uh, and mostly it's so I can have it for reference purposes for other things other than football questions. But I think at some point you develop a trust with these guys that they know you're not going to betray them. Uh, you're going to be straight. You're going to be honest. Um, when Frank Clark was here, it's a good example, defensive end, um, and signed a big contract a couple of years ago with Kansas City, but came in with a bit of a cloud over him. He had had some issues when he was uh, at uh, at Michigan and was in trouble, uh, and had been uh, had been uh, thrown off his football team uh, for a domestic uh, incident. And he hadn't talked a whole lot about it. And I got him to open up and talk about it a little bit, and tears came into his eyes. And, um, you know, you could start to tell the kind of person he was. And I, I was very fair in the questions I asked, but I was also trying to be honest as well. Anyway, I gave him the opportunity to talk, and, and I, you know, in the interview had both sides of that equation. And he trusted me after that. And even when we play Kansas City, he comes over to me and gives me a hug and says, hey. And those are kind of relationships that, that when you develop those, you know, man-to-man, not broadcaster to player, uh, but, uh, you know, two guys who have been in that battle and understand what it's all about and what it's like. And uh, that, that I, I appreciate that. And that's not to say I'm going to go easy on a guy who makes, uh, you know, serious mistakes uh, and who deserves to be called out on it. But I just think there's that there's that way to develop that trust, uh, and uh, if you're again, I go back to that honesty. If you're honest, uh, and yes, you may be a member of the media, uh, but if if you're if you're truthful to not only the players and the organization but yourself, I think you can walk that line. I, I, I remember uh, vividly that that question was asked of me really quickly because in 1982 uh the league went on strike it was the year i retired so right before the season i go on i retire and then the league goes on strike players walked out during the season in 1982 and so one of the first stories i covered was as a sports journalist was the strike so I go to where the players were having a, a meeting 
uh, and they invited the press to be there. And so we all brought cameras. And so I'm standing there with all these players and, you know, the player rep is sitting there in front. That was Kenny Easley at the time. And several players are standing around him and a lot of players. And they all, not all of them, but a number of them specifically looked at me and said, so now, you know, Rabes, you're on the other side. Now you're against us too, right? And wow. that was, you know, I said, wait a minute. I'm not on anybody's side here. In fact, I'm a lot closer to you guys than I am with the guys <laughs> I'm standing with right now. But I'm here to cover this story because it is an important story. And, you know, those guys came around. They understood. We were teammates. You know, they know. But it was one of those things that you have to, you know, you, you have to deal with right away. And depending on how you deal with it is how you're going to be looked at and, and either respected or not respected after that. Right. It's almost like there's there's something incumbent on the news side of it, too, of having of, of respecting your role with the team. Um, so as not to, like, the thing you said off the top, not to, hey, we need something from the Seahawks. Let's go to Steve for this. Um, because right. then it puts you uh, in and, a weird and spot. I was always... I was always careful about that. I, you know, there were there were times. Uh, if um, uh, a good example, when the Seahawks threatened to move back in 1996 uh, under the owner then Ken Baring, uh, and literally they were, you know, we couldn't get a deal to build a new stadium, uh, and so Baring wanted to leave, and he was just going to pull the team out. It was much like you probably remember, but much like the Colts when they left Baltimore yeah. and went to Indianapolis, literally on a snowy night, and and the moving vans took off. Yeah. Um, I got a call early in the morning from an assistant coach who was a friend of mine who said, "Hey, you might want to get over here because they got the moving vans here. We're we're leaving. They had threatened it, and now they were packing up." And so I went and, and covered it, and, and uh, so you know you get sometimes, as you know, you get those those sources, and and that's a good thing to have, uh, and it also worked well for our news department because we had it before anybody else. But uh, uh, you know, again, there there every situation is different, and uh, and you just take it as it comes along. But if you don't. Um, I don't know. If you're again, if you're true to yourself, uh, I, I think uh, you you will come out on the right side of it as long as you're in most most of all as long as you're honest with uh, the listeners and the viewers, and uh, that that I think is is the most important part. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I did have two more things I wanted to to throw at you here. Sure. Um, one thing you alluded to earlier was the transition for you in 2004 from the analyst chair to the play-by-play chair um, and how you handled that and, and what was difficult, interesting, fun about um, making that switch and then and, and realizing you've made that switch and, and, and doing one job and not both jobs. trying to remember when I really, it it took me a little while before I really got comfortable. I remember we did uh, early on, we did a preseason game might've been the first preseason game um, of that season, 2004 or second or something in green Bay. (laughs) And I loved going to green Bay. Anyway, I loved the Packers when I was growing up, they were my team, Bart Starr, Jim Taylor, Willie Woods, all those guys. Uh, they were my favorites. So I was looking forward to that. I really was, I really prepared hard for it. We get there and we're setting up in the booth and lo and behold, in walks Vern Lundquist. Now I had, I had met Vern. Vern had done some preseason games for us in the past, but Vern was in the neighborhood because there was a big golf tournament going on up at the Kohler uh, golf course, the big country club there in Wisconsin somewhere. And so it wasn't very far away. And and he just came down to take in the game because he knew a a number of us with uh, the Seahawks organization. And he sat in the booth. Now, I don't know if you've been to the Green Bay press box, No, big, big press box. And for part of the game, he sat right next to me. (laughs) Now here I am my second game doing play-by-play on the radio, and the one and only Vern Lundquist is sitting there. And you talk about, I mean, it's it's like walking onto the field as a player, and, you know, well, I did. I have, In fact, I did play with one of those guys, Steve Largent, but I didn't realize it at the time <laughs> that he was going to be a Hall of Famer. But... <clears throat> 
to go out there and there's Jerry Rice, um, you know, or one of the, one of the all-time greats, Paul Warfield. Uh, you know, for me, that that would be just something that's that's almost too hard to to comprehend. And yet here I am with Vern, and so I find myself as I'm describing the play, looking at the field and looking through my field glasses, the, the broadcast booth in at, uh, at Lambeau Field is way high. So you have to look through the field glasses for most of the game. So I'm looking down the field, and then with one eye, I'm looking out of the corner of my eye to see if Vern kind of, you know, did he sort of look like, oh, gosh, that was not very well done, or did he look somewhat approvingly at what I said? And and it was it was so interesting. And one of the things that uh, a, a guy who was a vice president with the Seahawks for many, many years, and a dear friend, a guy named Gary Wright, one of the things that Gary told me was, he said, you have to learn to let the game come to you. And I never really understood what that meant until I started doing it. And then I wanted to be so out in front of the play that uh, in some cases I would have to backtrack and you know redo what I just did because either I was ahead of the game or I was flat wrong or I got the wrong yard. And let the game come to you was sort of a way of saying, you know, you're those listeners' eyes. They can't see it unless they're watching on TV and they're, you know, running the radio at the same time. But most of the people can't see it. So you have that extra second or so to let the play evolve, let it open up, and then you can fill in the, you know, you can fill in around it as you're wrapping up your call of a play. And as I started to learn that and listen to guys like Vern, uh, I, I sort of understood what that meant. And so that was the biggest thing I had to learn. Again, also not learning not to do Warren's job, the analyst's job. And, and that was to, once I finish, know where to put the period, know where to end the sentence, and let them pick it up, which is, you know, I have an opportunity sometimes during preseasons to work with other young guys who want to be analysts. And so they'll get one shot in the booth during preseason, and, and the first thing I tell them is know where to put the period. I say, you know more than everybody who's listening out there, but – you don't have to tell us all in one play. So just give it to us on this play and then live to speak again on the next play so that I have time to set it up. And so, you know, just a couple of simple little things to tell the analyst and, and things that I learned from doing it for, a, for 20 years myself. Well, on that note, uh, I, I will finish with you on uh, there's two, thing, two plays I wanted to ask you about in particular. Uh, one of them is a first play, and one of them is essentially a last play. Um, and that is in the two Super Bowls that you called. Um, what it was like for you? Like I know when I show up to call a game, like there's always you're always ready, but like there, you, the first play you, you're finding your groove, and you show up to call a Super Bowl, and uh, immediately the ball's in the end zone and it's a safety. Um, and and the next Super Bowl you call ends obviously with a goal line interception. Um, if if you can take me back through those two moments and what ran through your mind uh, in terms of how you had to convey those moments. Well, uh, it's interesting. The, the first one, the first play, the, the, the Super Bowl of 2014, that was back in New York against the Broncos. Um, one of the things that, that you find out, and having done now broadcast uh, called play-by-play for three Super Bowls, uh, unfortunately two of them we didn't win, but that one in New York we did, obviously. One of the things you learn is that everything is extended. Everything lasts much longer, including the run-up to the game. And so we had a lot of time. We have a pregame show, and all of our pregame guys were back there uh, as well. Uh, but, you know, you, uh, me as the play-by-play guy, I have more time to interact with uh, our run-up, with our, with our analyst, with uh, Warren at the time. And I have more time to, to uh, kind of think things through and talk about the keys to the game and all those, all those things that you prepare for. And then the, then down on the field, uh, you know, everything from the toss of the coin to the flyover to the national anthem, everything is big and grand and, and the rest. And so you're already warmed up, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Unlike a 105 or a 103 kick on a normal Sunday afternoon where you get it at 1 o'clock, do your setup, 
go. There's the kickoff, and you're off and running. We had some time. And we, I remember specifically one of our keys to the game was going to be turnovers, the best defense in the league <laughs> against the best offense. I mean, it's, it's a simple, you know, it was going to be a simple equation that way that, that, that had to be one of the biggest parts of the game. And, uh, and here it comes on the first play of the game. So, you know, sometimes in that first play, you're still looking down at your notes. You're not really thinking too much about that first play. I just happened to look up, and at the right time, I had my glasses, my field glasses on it, and I saw it happen instantly. And and then what you saw in that play was, and I kind of knew it before it, it all you know played out and we saw Peyton Manning talking about it on the sidelines, but he, his center could not hear him. And we knew, because of pregame warm-ups and everything else, how many Seahawks fans were there and how loud the place was. And so right away, we could make that connection mm. that they never heard the snap count up front because it was so loud and because they were backed up against their own end zone and so many Seahawks fans were right there uh, screaming and so that became suddenly a huge factor in the game on the very first play. And so that there again, that now that becomes, you know, a key that you can keep going back to over and over again during the game. Of course, when it got to be like 43 to eight, you kind of knew they weren't going to come back. Uh, so then it became now, how do you prepare for the end? You know, I'm, I'm always uh, a little, uh, nervous about uh, about wrapping it up before I see all zeros up there but uh, but we could and so uh, I'm often asked what's the what's the best call you've ever made and I I kind of always answer the you know the the line that I had as the game was ending that you know they're bringing the trophy home the Seahawks Super Bowl 48 champs and it's you know it's played on ESPN and in the Seahawks uh, highlight videos and all that and that's the one that means the most because it was the first last so far uh, only Super Bowl championship uh, for the Seahawks the last play of the game in Arizona was so surprising certainly to me as it was to all the fans uh, because I just knew knowing Russell Wilson knowing our offense watching us just move right down the field uh, I knew we were going to score and we were going to win that game everybody on the Seahawks bench knew that same thing and everybody in the stands uh, wearing um, the electric green and rave green and blue for the Seahawks knew that was going to be the case that was just it we were going to win the game and, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you that I expected that they were going to run the ball. I, I will tell you that I, I did not quarrel with the call because the Patriots had just run the, almost the same play earlier in the game and scored a touchdown from near the goal line uh, on a throw uh, just, you know, a few series before. Now, and we could talk about that at another time, but uh, I, you know, you quibble with the execution, but I don't quibble with the call. Mm. But when that ball was thrown, and I watched uh, the quarterback uh, jump that play and and pick it off, I, I was so stunned, and I was, you know, I, I remember Russell three step drop, looking right side, fires the ball. And then I, I think I paused for one second and said, oh, my God, it's intercepted. And I, I know that that's exactly what every Seahawks fan anywhere, listening, watching, taking part at the stadium, thought the, those very same words, oh, my God, it's intercepted. And, I, you know, I literally had to pause for a second and, and, okay, catch your breath, explain what happened, and explain how this is, you know, going to be mean the loss of a second straight Super Bowl opportunity here for, for a win. And, you know, you just go with it and you don't really think about it too much because again, you're in the process. You're busy describing everything that you see and hear. I, I happened to look down our booth there in Phoenix at the uh, university of Phoenix stadium is sort of in the corner of the end zone. That's where the, the visiting radio booth is. So I got to call the super bowl from the booth. I always use when we're there playing the Cardinals and down in the lower bowl directly below me was my wife, my producer's wife and a whole bunch of Seahawks fans. And 
they were sitting literally yards from where the interception took place. Oh, mercy. And so I looked straight down as I was kind of describing what happened. And I, I saw my wife and, I, and our, my producer's wife was in tears. And Sharon, my wife, had sort of her hands on top of her head. And as and I looked around and it, and it looked like everybody who were Seahawks fans had their hands on top of their heads just saying, what just happened? And so I was trying to describe that that visual to the people who were listening as well. And and just the sense, the, the that whoosh that you heard was the air going out of the stadium and going out of each uh, Seahawk uh, fan. And, you know, then you just move on and you, you, you know, you, you finish the game and you talk about the opportunity missed and you hope that this team will have another chance to do this again, although you know in your heart that no team ever stays the same. And so they will change, and they did the following year, certainly. So those were the two plays that, you know, that's what each of those plays meant. Um, and you know what the good thing is? We still have some of the same players who were in both of those <laughs> games, especially the quarterback, yeah. and he's the one that matters most. And so, you know, with luck, we'll still get back there a couple of more times before I hang it up. Well, uh, Steve, this has been uh, an absolute joy to be able to sit here and pick your brain a little bit, so I appreciate you taking the time and doing it. Um, I know you're not on TV, obviously, anymore, but if people want to find you uh, on the dial or on social media, uh, how do they find more Steve Rabel? Well, I think I'm still on Twitter at, <laughs> at Rabel Cairo 7 I think. Um, and I don't do a lot on social media. Um, it's probably for but, the better. You yeah. know, our Seahawks radio network is, it will be up and flying high. And, uh, um, you know, there's, there, I know the Seahawks have a lot of our calls on their, in their video library that they have on their website. So, um, you know, once the season starts, uh, you know, we'll be out there and I think people can stream the games. I don't quite know how all that works. I, I leave that to the technical folks. <laughs> I just go and do it. And however they present it or on what platform is, is everybody else's uh, issue. But uh, as long as I get the opportunity, that's what I, I just feel like I'm blessed every, every chance I get. So I want to make the most of it. All right. That is Steve Rabel joining us here on PXP cast. I said this to Steve when we finished recording before we hopped off the line the thing that really resonated with me about that entire conversation was when Steve talked about doing news and being able to sink his teeth into it and and having and I don't mean this is a knock on the sports broadcasting world that we're all in but like being able to have a little bit more depth to all of the things that he was covering and that you're not spending your entire career talking about Hey, that's a great touchdown, and that's a great curveball, and um, that's a great goal. Um, you're able to talk about, you know, presidents, and talk to presidents, and talk about beyond sports things that are impacting people in so many different ways across all of their everyday lives, and um, the desire to be involved in conveying that information and making a difference and, and beyond, you know, being a a media personality, Steve is a a huge difference maker in the greater Seattle community. Um, so to see and hear the way that he approaches life and the way that he approaches, um, the importance of his different roles and how those different roles shaped who he is and satiated his, um, thirst for, um, you know, his career and for being able to make an impact uh, was cool. That was really interesting and neat to see and uh, and refreshing in some ways as well. Steve Rabel, our guest, the voice of the Seattle Seahawks this week on PXP Cast. We're off till next week. My name is Joel Gadette. Many thanks to Steve Rabel. The music, as always, is Marshmallow, and we are out. That will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.